1984 episode, the ruse hit the skids and looked destined for the wooden spoon. The Tigers celebrate 100 years. A Wayne Carey, Anthony Stevens situation seems to be brewing up in Sydney. The Cats have a star-studded lot of debutantes for round one and Mick Malthouse lifts the dogs. All this and more coming up after the song. It's the history of football we knows about And we want to expand what we know We'll become such intelligent gentry With every kick-to-kick show Beginning in the time 1870s Right through to the modern day Tune in for Timmy Coops and the Kazman To hear what they all have to say Alright, welcome to the Kick to Kick podcast, the Australian Rules Football History podcast that takes a deep dive into the history of the league. Uh, it's Charlie and Tim here, we've got no qualifications to bring you this show, but uh, we enjoy doing it. We certainly do, absolutely no qualifications. No, do. none at all. Welcome to our first show of uh, night of 2023. <laughs> Happy New Year. Uh, and we're focusing on the 1984 season. It's good to be in front of your face again, Timothy. It is, an exciting year for the, the podcast because we've got a few big plans. We do, we do. We'll have, we'll, it's going to be yeah, yeah, an exciting time. Yeah, we'll have we'll have a few of these episodes, and then that'll change. We'll talk we'll talk about what we what we. So before we get stuck into 1984 season, Charlie, a few little bits and pieces I want to go through. Um, firstly, our team of 1970 to 1983, um, we did have a massive oversight where for some reason we put Royce Hart at centre half back. Yeah, instead of centre half forward. Know. We both must have had a brain fade at the exact same time. I'm so not sure what was going on. Depends there. when you've listened to it, because I went back and edited it, so it sounds <laughs> like we did the right thing. But um, if you listen to the episode when we had Royce Hart at centre-half back, um, that was a, a mix-up. So we shuffled things around, and he is now at centre-half forward. Glenn Denning comes in at centre-half back, and Jezelenko is on the bench. Yeah. But a very handy member of the bench. Certainly is. Yeah. Um, had, a, had a bit of contention with, with that team, as always. Um, some people felt there's some people who definitely deserved Trevor Barker, for instance. Many people felt, felt he should have been in the team. Yeah, and well, I mean, we he was right on like we said that he was right mm. on the edge of it, wasn't he? For he us, was, absolutely. But, yeah. Um, the other thing I want to talk about is some football books I read over the holidays. Um, the first one being Colin Carter's book Footy's Forgotten Years, um, which talks about the need to include 1870 to 1896 in the official history of the AFL-VFL. And tallies, you know, included in grand final ta- well, premiership tallies that's and things one as- like that. That's one aspect one of it. One very small aspect, um, yeah. Really interesting and definitely has convinced me that it needs to happen, but maybe we wait until you've read it, Charlie, to discuss it properly. Well, because we've, t- we've talked about this, and, yeah. and at the moment, I'm on the other side of this argument. Yeah. And I think you were you agreed with I me. Was, yeah. You were kind of on the fence, at least, until yeah. you read it, right? Yes. So, yeah, but I'm very much now, I think it needs You're to, on board. Yeah, for, for a few reasons, but I'll, I'll let you read the book to yeah, go into I'd it. I'd love to. Um, but recommend? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah I've, I've just handed it over to you, so Can't wait. please get stuck into it. Um, and the other book I got, football related, was a book on football jumpers and the history of football jumpers. Uh, it's called The Football Jumper Book, Vintage Football Guernseys of Australia, uh, done by Tim Rath and Andrew Giggitz. Um, really interesting just collecting lots of different old jerseys from across history and just kind of telling the story. Lots of pictures, lots of not just AFL, VFL, lots of country leagues, school leagues, inter-club leagues. It's really interesting. There's some really nice ones there and some little anecdotes as well. 
That's what I mean. We talk about that all the time. That's what this is all about. The anecdotes are what makes the history, right? That's Absolutely. What they, yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's awesome. There's some great ones in there. That, you know, if I get a chance to share, I will. Oh, good. Good shout out. I like that. Yeah. So um, yeah, definitely. There are two interesting football books that are out at the moment to have a read of. Um, but Charlie, we're here to talk about the 1984 season. We certainly are. Um, hello, listeners in Italy, Thailand, the UK, Sweden, New Zealand, and South Africa. Ah, buongiorno. As well, um, like we always do, Charlie, let's get to some history first. The song of the year, I kind of got two here. Stevie Wonder, I just called to say I love you, number one for eight weeks. Great. And Wham, Wake Me Up Before You Go Go, uh, number one for seven weeks, oh, among wow. the many bangers of 1984. There we are. Uh, let's get stuck into some of your history. All right, let's do it. So, nineteen eighty-four, Timmy. All right, what do you got? She was a great year. Uh, <laughs> so, to start off with, first thing in sports news, twenty-second of January, we had Super Bowl twenty-eight. Uh, played between the defending champions, the Washington Redskins at the time, and the AFC champions, the Los Los Angeles Raiders, uh, to determine the champion for the previous season, the 83 season. The Raiders defeated the Redskins 38-9. On the 1st of February, we had Medicare coming into effect in Australia. On the 26th of March, we had the $100 note introduced for the very first time in Australia. Remember the old grey one? Yeah, Mawson. Douglas Mawson, yes, on it. Uh, on, in April, didn't have an exact date on this one, but I love this, a 915-gram jar of Vegemite was the very first product in Australia to be electronically scanned at a checkout. Hey! <laughs> on the 19th of April, we had Advance Australia Fair proclaimed as Australia's national anthem, and green and gold were proclaimed our national colours. After seems, a comprehensive study? Well, yeah, it seems quite recent, doesn't it? Yeah, it's our lifetime. And in the, on the 14th... Oh, are you born yet? No, not okay. yet. Okay, my lifetime. On the 14th of May, the $1 coin was also introduced in Australia. Yes, finally. Mm. Uh, in May, we also had the uh, NHL playoffs going for the Stanley Cup. And they concluded on the 19th with the Edmonton Oilers defeating the four-time defending champions, the New York Islanders, 5-2 to two to win the Stanley Cup final. Uh, four games to one. It was the Oilers' first of quite a few Stanley Cups due Gretzky. to Wayne Gretzky. He scored 13 goals across the finals series. Huge. The King. Uh, and in May and June, we had the NBA World Championship Series as well, uh, which was between the Celtics and the Lakers. Finally meeting Bird and Magic. Finally Bird and Magic the finally meeting in the finals. Celtics forward Larry Bird averaging 27 points and 14 rebounds a game during the series, earning the uh, MVP. Um, and the Celtics beat the Lakers in this series uh, in seven games. Uh, on the 23rd of September, we had the Canterbury Bulldogs defeating the Parramatta Eels 6-4 to win the NSWRL Premiership. The Western Suburbs Magpies finished in last position. On the 6th of November, we had Black Knight winning the Melbourne Cup. And on the 2nd of December, we had the Hawke government re-elected with a reduced majority. Do you want to hear about some people that were born in 1984, Timmy? Sure. Uh, we had Sam Stosa on the 30th of March. Delta Goodrum on the 9th of November. On the 25th of November, we had Peter Siddle, the cricketer. And these are all people that are older than you, but younger yeah. than me. Yeah. yeah. 
surprising. Yeah. On the 28th of November, uh, the bogeyman, Andrew Bogut. And on the 8th of December, we had Tim Payne, the, uh, the cricketer as well. So there you go. There's 1984 in a little nutshell. Because it's football season, and that's the reason it's the time of the year that we love. All right, league news in 1984. There's a little bit of stuff here to discuss. In early April, the VFL swapped rounds 20 and 22 around due to an issue with Hawthorne versus Sydney in Sydney, which was proposed for the last round, so that was swapped to round 20. Will we talk about why that happened in, you know, we're going to talk about the reasons why it was changed? Do we know? No? No, I don't. Okay. I don't know. (laughs) Um, In April, the NFL, the National Football League, calls a conference to discuss the VFL's attitude to interstate recruiting after the VFL ignored an NFL request to revoke permits granted to two players to transfer from South Australia to back to Geelong. Um, there was discussions of a merger between Fitzroy and Melbourne. Ah, yes, okay. Uh, which Fitzroy denied ever taking place. Um, in June, the WA Football Commission approached the Sandful, the South Australian Football League, to discuss entering the VFL at the same time. Um, but they left under the impression that the South Australian Football League weren't really interested. Um, now, in September of 1984, we have a secret meeting of club representatives secretly organised by John Elliott and Ian Collins in Mount Macedon, proposing the setup of a new national competition. <laughs> Let me just read a little bit about of this from the Football Limited book. Um, with about half of the Victorian competition technically bankrupt, John Elliott believed they would end up running a competition of no more than 12 teams with just seven based in Melbourne. Matches, instead of being scheduled for Sunday, Saturday afternoon, will be played throughout each weekend, along with Friday and Monday night games, to prove more attractive to a commercial television network and maximise media revenue. A draft system would be introduced to maintain a controlled market for transferring players. A four-man board of management would control the board and the game and its chairman acting as the full-time football commissioner. So there's some of the proposals and how like He's prophetic. It's pretty swamp, spot on, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, they're also going to invite two clubs each from WA and South Australia to try to expand uh, around yeah. Australia. So, I mean, very insightful here and very much what actually happened, but not controlled by John Elliott. No. Um, <laughs> Thank God, I guess. Yeah, I, I guess. So, yeah. so from that meeting, and I'm, I'm really just glossing over it here, but um, three of the members... Um, went back and actually told dobbed on John Elliott and went and told Alan Aylett this was happening and kind of caused more to happen towards fixing basically the cut broken his, league. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, it was cut leaked. his legs out from under. Yeah. Um, so I think as a result, the McKinsey report was commissioned by the VFL, um, and this revealed that the expenses were exceeding operating revenue by nearly two million dollars per annum, and that six of the twelve clubs were technically bankrupt. Really? Yeah. Technically. Technically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we are definitely moving towards a new model and reform and change because spending has got out of control. Yeah. In the last year. Oh, sorry. In the last decade. Yeah. Yeah. Because you you think about like yeah, player payments are getting higher, expenses are getting higher, but the uh, the TV rights and things like that aren't there not really no TV rights no but they've kind of just started to really get more involved with um, merchandising and, yeah. and that sort of stuff but in terms of like the, yeah there's more going out but they haven't figured out the in part no that's true yeah. um, the other thing was they were planning a franchise system for all clubs and that will be interesting when we move towards what Sydney do yes. next season as the, as the test pilot that 
crashed into a side of a mountain, I guess. Yeah, I don't you know. Can yeah. say that. <laughs> you can say that. Um, so that's some of the stuff that was happening off the field. Um, so let's work our way up that ladder, Charlie. Let's do Working it. Working from 12th to 6th today as we'll... Uh, yeah, as we have been. On. So in 12th spot, taking out our wooden spoon in 1984, with five wins and 17 losses and a percentage of 75.5, we have St Kilda, unfortunately. Oh, uh, coached by Tony Jewell and captained by Trevor Barton. All right, some, uh, some debutants include Phil Cronin, Phil Narkel, and Younger Man, who is a distant relative to Quentin Narkel, who played oh, for Geelong yep. last season. Uh, John Schultz, David Grant, Robert Muir's back, and one big debutant is Danny Frawley. Spud. Uh, educated at St. Patrick's College in Ballarat, he played country football for East Ballarat and Bungaree. Uh, he grew up and worked on a potato farm in Bungaree, which led to his nickname, of course. Uh, at St Kilda, he initially played as a forward, but soon became a tough, hard-hitting, very well-renowned full-back, uh, the Golden Fist, of course. Yeah. Um, it's also the nephew of former Collingwood player Des Tuddenham. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, very interesting. So, he's a fantastic player, brilliant uh, media personality. and he was a coach uh, for a while as well. Yeah, of course. And um, unfortunately, sadly, no longer with us. No. Very heavily remember this whole match, like Spud's around, Spud's game. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, yes. All right, some news at St Kilda. Jeff Saru left the club on the eve of the season after being dumped as vice-captain. He wasn't very happy with that. No. Um, but St Kilda started the season with six straight ra- uh, losses. Round six, I'm going to mention, even though it was a loss, it was a memorable game because of another brain snap by St Kilda's Robbie Muir. Um, and do we, I don't know if we call it a brain snap because he was definitely targeted for racial abuse. Yeah, so it was like a... He yeah well I, said, I guess he, he couldn't he couldn't control it any longer couldn't yeah let it wash over him. So when Carlton seized control of the match in the third quarter, Muir went berserk, lashing out at any blue within range. Umpire Kevin Smith ran in to restore order, and Muir let fly at him with a torrent of abuse. Then spectacularly hurled his mouth guard to the turf. He ended up on report for threatening the central umpire, abusing a goal umpire, headbutting Carlton's Bruce Duell, striking his former teammate Val Perovic. Uh, he was found guilty of all charges by the tribunal and he was given a 12-game suspension, uh, ultimately ending his VFL career. Very sad. Um, however, the Saints' one shining light, I guess, in that game for the St Kilda team was that their score of 13-12-90 was their best score at Princess Park for 49 years. There you go. So silver linings. Yeah. Around seven, they did earn their first win of the year against the Kangaroos at VFL Park. The Saints had the lead in sight with a seventeen point, had a win in sight with a seventeen point lead at three quarter time. Then put their foot on the gas in the last quarter to win by forty seven. Greg Burns set the win up with a big first half. Tony Lockett kicking seven. Uh, this was their first win over North Melbourne since nineteen seventy eight. In round eight, they made it two in a row with a three-goal victory over the Dogs. They actually led for most of a fiery game when four players were reported on six charges. The fight's happening in the second quarter when the Saints took the lead um, and they took this momentum into the final quarter to kick 5-3 and win the game. Mid-season at St Kilda, there was a financial crisis looming. We know six of the 12 clubs were technically bankrupt. Um, Seven players were still owed money. Um, and those seven players accepted a club proposal of 22.5 cents to the dollar of their payments. Uh, this actually included people like Alan Jeans and Cowboy Neal. Oh, so it's really? dating back quite a bit, people yeah. who owed money. 
So taking a quarter of what they were owed. Okay. Yeah, but they did it. Yeah. Did it for the team. In round 13, the Saints travelled to Sydney and caused a big upset led by Tony Lockett, who kicked seven goals. The Saints led all day and then withstood a late Swans charge to hold on and win by 25 points. Round 16, the Saints had a great win over Carlton at Moorabbin. The freak overhead cloud burst on Friday night, undoubtedly helping the Saints in their quest for victory. And I say it's like just a localised shower over Moorabbin, Charlie, if you, if you know what I'm saying. I, uh, yeah, 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 I'm with you. <laughs> yeah, so the wet and muddy conditions definitely suited St Kilda far more than the Blues. <laughs> it was their first win over the Blues since 1978. In round 18, the Saints went down to the Bulldogs and Tony Jewell came out and said that this would be his last season, saying that the demands of the club administration made the job tough. He was promptly fired and Graham Jelly was announced as caretaker coach for the remainder of the season. Um, and his, co- his coaching tenure was off to a great start with a win over the Tigers at Moorabbin. Uh, one of the highlights of this was Danny, Danny Ferrolli's blanket job on Brian Taylor. The Saints winning by seven points. Uh, and that was their final win of the season. So, not a great year, right? No. I mean, again, we take those silver linings. Tony Lockett. We do, yeah, yeah, exactly. You've got to take it where you can. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to get better. Yes, right? it's only up. Exactly. One way up. Exactly. So the lead goal kicker for us and Kilda, of course, with Tony Lockett with 77 goals this year. Yep. Uh, um, and that's the most by a Saint since Bill Moore in the 1930s. Is it really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There you go. Uh, and the Trevor Barker Award in uh, 1984 went to Greg Burns. Nice. Yeah. Uh, so that takes us up to 11th spot on the ladder where we have North Melbourne with... Also five wins and 17 losses, but a slightly healthier percentage of 81.7. Coached by Barry Cable and captained by Wayne Schimmelbush. The mighty have fallen. Yeah, real end of an era here. Yeah. Um, Debutants include Paul Johnson, David Dwyer, Angelo Petraglia, Ross Smith, Darren Steele, Matt Larkin, um, Michael Lennigan, Tim Harrington... Uh, Mark Arsiri and Peter German. Tell us a bit about Peter German. Ah, uh, yeah. So Peter German, very strong, solidly built sentiment or on baller with a pon- uh, penchant for uh, ploughing his way through heavy traffic. He arrived at North Melbourne from Oak Park and played under-19s prior to making his senior debut as a 19-year-old in 1984. There you go. Um, pre-season, the club asked the MCC and the VFL if they could move their home ground to the MCG. They tried to get the get Arden Street developed, but to no avail. So round one was a disastrous start to the season. They got hammered by 137 points by Carlton. Oh. Yep, so started the season horribly. Um, they were missing some big names, as in Keith Gregg and Ross Glendenning. Um, so really under the weather. But they'd finished on top last season, if you remember, 83, last when we recorded last year. Yeah, yeah. They, you know, Barry Cable had come in and, and really rejuvenated the team. Um, round three, Glendenning and... Keith Gregg came back into the team, but it didn't get it didn't help them overcome the dogs who beat them by sixty three points. So they're getting some players back, but that form has been lost already. It wasn't it wasn't until round four when they finally had their first win of the year with an underdog win over the Cats. The Cracker Brothers, Glenn Denning, were all great in the team's revival and win. Uh, they won that game by fourteen points down at the uh, Cardinia. Round five, they played the Demons on the MCG as the home team. Really? Yeah. It was a seven-goal burst in the third quarter, which proved the difference. Graham Atkins, Wayne Schimmelbush, and David Dwyer, the key Rue playmakers. Following that, though, was a run of eleven straight losses. 
round 17, the Saints and the Roos played an epic encounter for the two bottom teams. Uh, the Saints started strongly only for the Roos to fight back and take the lead by half-time. They then held on to win by two points, ending a run of 11 straight losses um, and lifting themselves within reach of overtaking St Kilda on the ladder because they were at the moment dead last by more than the game. Oh, okay. I think oh, wow. two games at that stage. Uh, in round 18, they had a win over the Swans and Keith Gregg overtook David Dench's game record at uh, the club. The Roos' 15-point win also meant they remained unbeaten in Sydney and lifted them off the bottom of the ladder. Their percentage slightly better than St Yes. Yeah. Round 19, the Roos got one back on their road rivals and reigning premiers Hawthorne. It was Ross Glendening's 150th game and he inspired the Roos to a shock 71-point victory. He kicked three goals, as did Ross Smith and Ian Fairley. Um, but that was their last win of the year and... You know, only five wins, so very much what we remember of North Melbourne, not what they've been recently. Um, it was a very disappointing season and brought an end to a very successful period in North Melbourne history with the retirements of Arnold Brightus, Gary Cowton, David Dench, Gary Dempsey and Kerry Good. Um, the emphasis was, that, you know, on youth and that this era is now over. Yeah. Moving on to the next one. That was North Melbourne. That's them. Yeah, unfortunately. Got a goal kicker for me? Goal kicker? I certainly do. Uh, the lead goal kicker was uh, Donald McDonald with 38. So not a huge uh, t- total. And uh, the Sid Barker medal in 84 went to Kim Hodgman. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so taking us up to 10th, but we've got Sydney with nine wins and 13 losses, percentage of 88.1. Uh, so big gap between the bottom two and then... Yeah, four games to the next one. Yeah, huge. Uh, ca- uh, coached by Ricky Quaid and captained by Barry Round. Mm, some big news at the Swans this year as well. We'll get to yeah. that in a minute. Uh, debutants include Paul Hawke, David Murphy, Patrick Foy. They recruited Billy Pickin. He was their big recruit from Collingwood. Oh, yep, yep. Um, and another recruit was Barry Mitchell. Yeah, so Barry Mitchell was an abundantly talented rover who made light of an apparent lack of pace to be one of the highest possession gatherers in the VFL-AFL. His ground skills were exceptional and there were few hardier players. His use of the ball once he obtained it was first rate and he was extremely dangerous near the goals. Yeah, and also father of Tom Mitchell. Yeah. yeah. Also a uh, very good possession gatherer yes. in the game. Yeah. Um, Alright, so round one, despite David Rees-Jones kicking six goals, they lost to the Hawks. Uh, round two, the Swans felt like they had the match won at half time with a 39-point lead over the Demons. But they had to weather a demon comeback in the second half and held on to win by 14 points. David Rhys-Jones kicking five goals. So they really started the season on fire. In round three, they beat the Saints at Moorabbin with a score of 22 goals, 13, 145. It was their best ever score at Moorabbin and their biggest win there in 15 years. They won another close game, this time over the Magpies at Victoria Park. They led all day despite strong comebacks from the Pies across the match. Arthur Chilkett with four goals and Bernie Evans was great around the ground. Round five, the Swans made it four in a row with a strong win at the SCG over the Lions. Similarly to the Pies win, they led for most of the game and then held the Lions at bay. The final margin was 15 points. Following the game, Prime Minister Bob Hawke called coach Ricky Quaid to congratulate him and the players. Really? Mm. Uh, Round eight, the Swans got back. So they they then suffered two losses. Round eight, they got back on the winner's list with a comprehensive win over the Roos at Arden Street. They kicked six goals, six in the opening quarter while holding the Roos to just six behinds. The Swans did their thing and held on to win by seven after a 45-point lead at half-time. Mark Browning kicked five points. Now, round 12, Melbourne's 97-point win over the Swans was so comprehensive that Sydney coach Ricky Quaid lamented, nearly everyone at the club has let us down today. I hope they feel ashamed. 
So because of so following the loss to St Kilda in round 13, Barry Round was actually dropped on the eve of the next game, um, and he resigned or retired immediately. However, there was another bombshell to come with the resignation of coach Ricky Quaid on the eve of the match against the Pies in round 14, citing ill health. So they both sort of retired at the same time. So Ricky Quaid's quit, resigned as coach, and Barry Round's been dropped as a player. Yep. Okay, it sounds a bit suspicious. And look, everything you read will tell you it was just an this is just a circumstance. But you start digging, there's a little bit more to it that you can kind of find out, but not a lot. No. So... Supposedly, there's rumors. There's rumors flying. Rumors. The rumor Ricky mill is Quaid hard. was okay. alle- so Ricky Quaid, the coach, was allegedly having an extramarital affair with the wife of Barry Round. Okay. The pair came to blows at the SCG on the Thursday night prior to the game against Collingwood in Round 14. Now, around this time, Ricky Quaid was hospitalised with a, a stomach ulcer. Okay. But maybe it was something more serious from a bit of biff. Maybe. Um, but ultimately, it brought an end to his coaching career. He never coached the Swans again. Um, and yeah, he was forced to resign, uh, suffering from a bleeding ulcer, I think is the official word. And if you read any of the papers, that's what all the papers say. Most of the books say that as well. So there's nothing... There's nothing. Look, there's a little bit in Football Limited that suggests what we just talked about. Okay. But there's no concrete evidence that this happened. It's all hearsay. It is. We don't want to... Yeah. <gasps> But your captain it's, and your coach gone in one in one fell swoop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. well, no matter what, no matter what the truth is, it's a pretty terrible sign for Sydney. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. Um, so former player Tony Franklin was announced as an interim coach, and he coached the Swans to a round fourteen loss to the Magpies. Fair enough, considering yeah. all that's happened. Um, Mark Browning took over as captain. Okay. Um, in the meantime, the club was looking to get an, a replacement coach straight away. They got South Australian Bob Hammond who took up the post for the remainder of the season. When asked why he took the job, he said, I must be crazy, but I love football and see the Swans as the first step to a national competition. So around 15, new coach Bob Hammond got off to a good start with a win over the Lions. Nice. Junction Oval. However, he was forced to coach from the boundary line after his telephone link broke down. Five goals to open the last quarter earned them a 28-point victory. All fans were welcomed into the rooms to sing the song after the game. Round 16, in an entertaining game at the SCG, the Swans earned their third straight win, this time over the Doggies. Warwick Kappa kicked four goals, and new coach Bob Hammond was well satisfied. The game was actually marred, though, by an incident in the third quarter when Bulldog Stephen McPherson was reported for striking the Swans' runner, Graham Bond, with a right fist to the head. He was subsequently fined $1,000. Round 21, the 10th place Swans earned their best win of the season. Not only did they end the top of the table Bombers' eight-game winning streak, they did in emphatic fashion, winning by 56 points at the SCG. Barry Round was back. He came back game after a seven-game retirement. He kicked three goals and he was chaired off the ground. Warwick Kappa kicked four. Tony Moore would kick four. Um, and at the end of the season, Bob Hammond stepped down, indicating he didn't want the job and had to return to South Australia for work reasons. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of stuff going on, isn't there? Mm. Um yeah, okay. So Warwick Capper was the lead goal sk- scorer for Sydney this year with 39. Okay. And the Bobby Skilton medal in 84 went to Bernie Evans. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting yes. year across the border. Yes. <laughs> if anyone knows more about that, please feel free to write us yep. in. Like, we've got just some things that happened, but if you really know what happened at that Thursday night between Barry Round and Ricky Quaid, I'd love to know. Or if you if you know that nothing happened, yeah, 
put the put the rumors to bed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be very interesting. Uh, crazy times. Anyway, moving up that ladder to ninth spot, we have the Demons. Melbourne sitting there with nine wins and 13 losses as well, but a slightly healthier percentage of 104.3. Coached by Ronald Dayabarassi and captained by Robbie Flower. Right, debutants include Ray Holden, Danny Hughes, Brett Bailey, Graham Yates, Paul uh, Early, Paul Early. Uh, and brother of Jared Healy, Greg Healy. Greg Healy, yes. Gutsy, extremely determined and, determined and highly effective. Sugar Healy was a significant contributor to the Demons' upsurge in fortunes during the late 80s. He joined Melbourne from Edith Vale, Aspendale, and won a Morrish medal for the best and fairest player in the VFL under 19 competition in 83. So he's come in strong, full of hope. Yes. Um, all right, so round one, they took on the Pies. And there was an attempt to actually buy home ground advantage off the cash-strapped cash magpies, but this was rebuffed. Um, so so 72,000 72, people came to see them at the MCG to open the 1983 season. So the Ds suggested a switch that would leave Collingwood as the home team, uh, earn them some money and give the Ds home ground advantage. Hey. Um, their administrators were in favour of the switch as it would have doubled their income they made at Victoria Park, yep. but the idea was vetoed by the club's match committee. So there's nearly a forced move when the roof actually blew off the off the uh, member stand on the Monday before the game, but the damages were rectified in time for the match. So this is that's really interesting. So even though there was a and you mentioned this in the in the intro, there was a potential merger. Yeah. We we're saying no. Here's some. Well, also potentially throwing away cash. Yeah. Well, these weren't going to make any money regardless because it wasn't their own ground. Ah, okay. was it was Victoria Park. They said, "Why don't we play at the MCG? We'll get more people to watch it. You'll make some money, we'll and we get on Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, sorry, I'm with you. I'm with you. But okay, they said no. Um, and the, the Pies won by 13 points. So had it been at the MCG, maybe Might it would have made that the game. Yeah. Uh, round two was a loss to the Swans, where they were yet to win. They have yet to win in Sydney against the Swans. Round six was the first win for the D's. They lost their first five. Nine goals to two in the first quarter, including three to Kelvin Templeton in the first eight minutes. And the D's were on their way. Victory was achieved even without Templeton, who had a groin injury, um, and Daryl Cox, who did his hamstring, who both had to leave the game at quarter time due to injury. Uh, when Melbourne led by 11 goals at the long break, the match was effectively over. Matched up against the one Geelong positive, Michael Turner, Robbie Flowers, one of the side's best on the wing with 25 touches and two goals. But it was young John, young John Fidge in his third game who lit the MCG up with four goals. Peter Moore, too, was dominant in the middle and had 27 possessions to go along with his win in the ruck. So that game, round six, uh, was a 63-point thumping of the Cats at the MCG, Charlie. Um, round eight, the game was little to recommend it. It was Fitzroy and Gary Wilson who provided the entertainment in the third quarter with a burst which drew the Lions from 13 points behind to 17 points in front of the Demons. But it was Robbie Flower who provided the inspiration for the D's with two goals in the first eight minutes of the last term to steady his side. He'd been forced to rest in the forward pocket all day because of an injured leg and kicked his second goal with a miraculous over-the-shoulder snap to extend the lead to eight points, the final margin 11. Wow. I, I wish I'd seen Robbie Flower play. Yeah. Like you, you read all this stuff, and I'm going to say some more. So round nine against the Dogs at Waverley. Five goals to one in the first quarter set up a comfortable lead. These took a 22-point lead at halftime before effortlessly extending it to nearly 10 goals at the last break. 
Robbie Flower was his side's best across the wing and dropping back into the dog's backline to constantly mop up the pressure and send his side back into attack. Calvin Templeton back to his best with eight goals. Speaking in a crowded, noisy dressing room full of fans after the match, Ron Barassi said, The young players of Melbourne are starting to bloom. Yeah, okay. Those fuchsias. Those, those fuchsias are blooming. Beautiful. Round 10 against the... D, uh, Round 10 against the Tigers, a mismatch allowed Robbie Flower to run riot on the half-forward flank for 10 minutes in the first term, and this laid the foundation of Melbourne's win. By the time Richmond closed down on the champion Demon, he had two goals on the board, and the Deeds had four. Flower kicked four on his own for the day and gave off as many to his teammates. Down the other end, Alan Jarrett shut down Maurice Rioli, who was the catalyst for many of the Tigers' forward thrusts, the Deeds by 27. Round 11, after knocking off the big guns, Richmond, and I don't know if I'd call them big guns, um, they started red-hot favourites but struggled to get away in round 11 against the Saints until, it was, until the Healy brothers booted five goals between them in the third term. The margin blew out to 51 points at the last change before a belated Saints comeback made the score a more respectable six goals for them. Round 12, the Swans visited, visited the Ds at the MCG. The Swans were dominated from first bounce to last. Melbourne's defence was sublime. Um, the Swans were kept to one goal in each of the first three quarters and two in the last. Attacks were regularly being turned into scores and at the other end... At the other end... Attacks were regularly being turned into scores at the other end. In their 97-point win... The 21 goals were spread amongst 11 players, with four from the experienced Kelvin Templeton and four from young Dale Dixon, who came off the bench after half-time to join the party. Round 13, a win over the Hawks vaulted the Demons into the top five for the first time of the year. The 17-point victory was set up by an eight-goal to four second quarter with the aid of a strong breeze. This was their first win over the Hawks after 22 straight losses. Oh. So since round two, 1973. Wow, that's a good one to get off. It is. Round 14 with the sides sliding towards their first loss in nearly two months to Essendon, Ron Barassi was in a foul mood. He stormed onto the ground to spray his troops and ended up in a slinging, slanging match with Shane Dantuck, whose teammate had to physically drag him away from the confrontation. Brassi had been berating his players for not looking him in the eye during the spray, and Zantuck took exception on the grounds that he had been doing just that. It soon escalated into a general slanging match between the two in the middle of Waverley. Coach and player reportedly made up over a drink at the Village Green Hotel in Waverley that night. <laughs> Good. Um, but it should be noted that the Demons did not win that game. They lost by 43 points. Ugh. Round 15 against North Melbourne. Conditions were heavy but not wet enough to slow the Demons' runners. Neither side scored for 12 minutes, but once the Deeds got going, they were rarely threatened again. The final margin was 30, 43 points, and this was their first victory against North in eight years after 16 straight losses. A lot of positives. Yeah. They're ticking off all those hoodoos, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Round 21, after five straight losses, the Deeds got one back, winning over the Saints by 38. Should have been by more, but Barassi took what he could after a tough week. And that is the Deeds season. So, yeah. not, as you said, some positives. A bit to take out, but um, still nine. Probably not good enough. No. Uh, so the lead goal, lead goal scorer at Melbourne in 84 was Kelvin Templeton with 51. Yeah. And the Bluey Truscott Award in 1984 went to Jared Healy, Peter Moore uh, runner-up. Okay. Mm. Uh, so t- eighth on the ladder, we move up to Richmond. With 10 wins and 12 losses, 90.9%. Uh, cap- coached by Mike Patterson and captained by Barry Rowlings. Mm. So the debutants include Michael Pickering, Trevor Poole, John Manton, David Simpson, Tim Barling. Um, the Tigers' Lord star 1983 recruit Phil Walsh from Collingwood, part of the uh, 
trade wars between Collingwood and Richmond. Uh, Kevin Ablett was lured across to join his brother Jeff as, as well. So there's two Abletts at Richmond. Okay, okay. Uh, Richmond was also celebrating their 100th year centenary. So okay. since their first game in the 18, late 1800s. Yeah. Uh, Mike Patterson was coach, as you said, the first time in 20 years the club was without Kevin Bartlett on their playing list. On their list? Yeah, okay. Um, the season started wow. disastrously, though, at Western Oval with a Bulldog win and they were in total control. But they righted the ship in round two with a barnstorming last quarter win over the Roos at the MCG. Mark Lee was excellent and Brian Taylor kicked six in a 14-point win. Next week, it was Michael Roach who started with seven goals and a 46-point win over the Lions. So the... the Tigers are trying to work out their forward structure. Yes. BT, Michael Roach, who's kicking the goals? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're um, both, it sounds like they're both pushing each other as well, which is good. Mm. Two losses to Carlton and Essen then followed. Round six, the awesome forward line of Jim Jess, Michael Roach and Brian Taylor carved up the Hawks at Waverley by 39 points. And this kicked off a four-game winning streak. Round seven, they took it up to the Swans at the SCG, winning a high-scoring game by seven points. BT was six. Waitman and Rioli were excellent. Um, in round eight, it was a blockbuster match against the Pies with 71,000 people turning up to see the game at the MCG. The Pies had all the play early, but the Tigers tore the lead back in the second quarter with six goals to one. This was the turning point and saw them win by 14 points. Then a round nine win over the Saints saw the club at six and three and really well placed to make an attack on the top five and push for finals. Two losses followed, though, before they were able to again beat the Ruse BT with six. But then the loss to the Lions and an absolute humiliation at the hands of Carlton um, saw them at their lowest ebb of the season. Um, they kicked four goals, 13-37, to Carlton's... Um, well, they lost by 115 points. Uh, it was their lowest score against Carlton since 1958. Uh, and this kind of bottomed out their season. Yeah. It really took the wind out of their sails. Round 17, they were able to haul off the Swans and destroy them by over 10 goals. Um, the Tigers' defence managed to hold the Swans to only three goals for the whole match. Rioli and Roach were the stars. Uh, the Tigers then upset the Bulldogs, who were aiming for finals, and we'll, we'll talk to that, about that soon. The Tigers outplayed the Dogs in the last term, and that one last quarter of tough precision football earned them a 20-point win. Rioli, Rioli was the leader for the Tigers. Final two matches of the season, Brian Taylor was dumped. Mm. I think for, maybe for form. I'm not sure if it was disciplinary. Um, and they'd salvaged the season. Well, they didn't salvage it, but they managed a win in the final round against the Demons. But all in all, for Richmond standards and to celebrate their 100-year anniversary, yeah, they've they'd be very short, disappointed. They? Yeah. Heads will roll. Don't well, you worry. They always do. Um, so BT was their, high, their leading goal scorer with 61 over his 16 matches. Um, almost double that of Michael Roach, actually, so... Okay. He's, looking, he's looking pretty good. And the Jack Dye medal in 1984 went to Mark Lee. Okay. Uh, so that takes us up to seventh spot where we have Footscray, those Bulldogs sitting there with uh, 11 wins and 11 losses in 93%. Uh, captain by Jim Edmund, coach by yeah, coming in as coach in January as well. So quite a late, so time. late start. Yeah. yeah, I'm a quite a young coach, Mick Mulhouse, at this stage. Yeah. Um, did he? How long did he? Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, just. Yeah, but, uh, he's made some changes. As we'll discuss, he's made some pretty positive changes with the dogs. Mm. Um, they had a first up win for their first match. They beat Richmond, his old side, in round one by 39 points. Simon Beasley kicking 11 goals four. 
So a big start for the Dogs. It was their first round one win for 10 years. So did you say, just say 11 goals for? Yeah. Yeah, sorry. I heard, I thought you said four goals. That's incredible. That's amazing. It's, so amazing. it's so, a good start. Yeah. Um, round three, the Dogs hit their best score against the Roos at Arden Street. 25 goals, 14, 164. Dogs Ruckman, Ian Purser was great. Ian Rickman kicked six goals and Beasley kicked five. The final margin was 63. Round six, the Dogs had the lead for the first two quarters against the Swans. But then the Swans took control and got ahead by 17 at the last break. But the Dogs never gave up with their new kind of determination. They earned themselves a seven-point win. Brian Royal best on ground with 29 posies and three goals. Around seven, they broke a long-standing hoodoo when they won at Windy Hill against the Bombers by 22 points. Their first win there since 1977. Dougie nice. Haw- Dougie Hawkins, brilliant on the wing. Uh, Dunn was good. Dunn was great on Big Fish, Paul Salmon, and Jim Sewell kicked five goals. Round ten, the Pies led by one point late in the match. With the ball in Collingwood hands and the Dogs' defence, the game looked over. Gubby Allen kicked the cross goal to teammate Greg Phillips, only for Simon Beasley to intercept and promptly kicked the winning goal for the Dogs. It was their first win over the Pies since 1976 after 10 straight losses. So, oh, like, few, the, like the Demons, yeah. Yeah, again, ticking off those hoodoos. Round 12 was a fiery clash with the Cats, and the fireworks started early. Mark Jacko Jackson and Gary Ablett both reported in the first quarter. Uh, at the end of, the f- end of that quarter, a power failure meant the siren wouldn't ring. The Cats bench tried to tell the umpire that, you know, it's end of the, end of the quarter, end of the quarter, but he said, no, I need to hear the bell. I can't Stop. take your word for it. Eventually, a cowbell was found and uh, quarter time was called. Uh, in this game, the Dogs eventually scrambled to a 16-point win. Round 13, the Dogs started the game against the Roots full of fight and early on, Keith Gregg was knocked unconscious after a clash with Simon Beasley. The Dogs kept the Roos goalless in the opening, getting out to a 33-point lead. The Roos fought back and got themselves back into the game, only to go scoreless again in the last quarter, the Dogs winning by 15. Round 14, the Dogs roared into the top four with a desperate win over the Lions. Despite being outscored 11 goals to four after quarter time, the Dogs had set up their win with a big opening term, kicking eight goals four to the Lions, two behinds. Yeah, well, that helps. The, yeah, the final margin was 14 points. Doug Hawkins, excellent. Round 18, the Dogs set off at an almighty pace against the Saints and raced to a 43-point lead, but the Saints reeled them in to only trail by 19 at half-time. It was Simon Beasley, that man again with four goals, who really got the Dogs steadying to win by 33 points. Um, So round 18, the Dogs were sitting just outside the top five, but with equal wins, so just on percentage. Yep. Really knocking on the door. Round 19, Simon Beasley kicked seven goals to lead the Dogs to a 32-point win over the Demons and keep their finals hopes alive. Um, so just two, just under two points, two percentage points out. But round 20, they played the Tigers. Scores were level at three-quarter time. Finals, you know, we win this, we can make yeah, it. Yep, yep. And they just capitulated. The uh, the Tigers just overran them in the last quarter. Um, Round 20, so round 21 again, another a win against the, the Blues helped. Uh, the Western Oval in a scrambly opening, the Bulldogs scored nearly two goals for the first term and held the initiative for the remainder of the contest. Yeah. Um, but now they're sitting, waiting for someone else to lose as well. Well, yeah. Um, Bruce Dill, Ken Hunter and Rod Ashman tried hard for the Blues, but overall they never looked likely to upset the tenacious Bulldogs. Uh, they played an inspired quarter, which increased their six-point halftime lead to a safe 33 for the last quarter. Uh, and they were able to run out winners in round 21 by 35 points. Uh, heading into the final round, they needed to win to make finals. The Cats were playing the Hawks, who are the reigning premiers. Yes. So you could assume we win this last game, we're a pretty good chance of playing finals. Yeah. 
Unfortunately, though, they did not. They lost by 43 points to the Magpies at Victoria Park, ending their chance of finals. Yeah, so if they'd won... Yeah, you're right. If they'd won, they would have been in. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Not to be. Not to be, but... A good, good, yeah, a good base, and, and good. first year coach Mick Malthouse has really set up the team. Missed out by, I mean, seven percentage points, really. Yeah. So yeah, uh, so the lead goal kicker at um, Footscray this year was uh, Simon Beasley with sixty-one goals, yep. and the Charlie Sutton medal in eighty-four went to Andrew Purser. Yes. So that takes us up to six spot and our final non-finalist. And that was the Cats, Geelong, as you just mentioned. So, uh, coached by Tommy Hafey, captained by Michael Turner. Again, 11 wins, 11 losses. A slightly uh, better percentage of 94.3. Some big debutants here as well. So, Gary Johns, Darren Jackson, Ray Sarovich, Ron Watt, Michael Lennigan. Yeah, yeah. Rob Hawkins comes in, uncle of Jack Hawkins. Oh, yeah. Yep. Um, we have Mark Jacko Jackson acquired from St Kilda. Moving around. One Gary Ablett has been convinced to come back from the country. Perhaps a change of pace and moving down to Geelong will be more suited to you. Yes. You like the country? Come and live in Geelong. Yeah, yeah. it's going to be great. Um, and two other debutants: one Stephen Hocking and the other Greg Williams. Big names, <laughs> especially Greg Williams, Diesel. What a time to start. Yes, so Diesel Williams uh, spent his early life in Melbourne before moving to Bendigo at the age of 10. There he played football for the Golden Square Football Club, earning strong acclaim at junior levels. Prior to 82, he trained in the pre-season with Carlton, but the Blues rejected him, deterred by his lack of speed and fitness. He returned to Golden Square for the season, winning the Mickelson Medal as the league best and fairest. This was again repeated in 83 and then Tommy Hafey saw something and uh, picked him up and brought him over to Geelong. And then we have Steve Hocking. So less audaciously talented than his younger brother, Gary, Steve was nevertheless an effective contributor to the Geelong cause in the 199 games he played between 84 and 94. Uh, most commonly used as a back pocket or half-bank flanker, he played with great verve and tenacity, but little flamboyance. In August 2017, Hocking was appointed AFL General Manager of Football Operations before returning to Geelong in 2021. Yeah, I mean, we probably know him more as an administrator now, don't we? Yeah. Um, all right, so round one. Listen to these debutants. So, Ablett, Greg Williams making their debut, and Mark Jackson. Coming across, yeah. Yeah, I was Ablett and Mark Jackson coming across, Greg Williams' debut. Um, Cats took on the Lions. Greg Williams, 38 touches. Ablett, 22, kicked three goals. Mark Jackson, nine goals two in a 49-point win. You know you've made some good choices. What a game. Um, round two, the Cats started hot against the Dogs. Their defence holding them to three behind for the opening quarter. Jacko kicked four but provided bo- great body work around the forward line. Cats winning by 40 points. Round three with Mark Jacko Jackson rampant at full forward. The Cats' skills and aggression proved too much for the complacent Blues. Jacko kicked six goals. The Cats added nine to seven in a sparkling second quarter to set up their victory. John Mossop starred in the ruck in the cat, for the Cats. The downside was Gary Ablett being reported and subsequently suspended for three weeks. Round five, the Cats were in control against the Saints. Greg Williams with the ball on a string with 35 disposals. Mark Jacko Jackson helping them to a 74-point lead early. He kicked six, but Hafey was furious when the Saints, led by six Tony Lockett goals, came back within 26 points, the final margin 31. 
Round 10, with the Hawks visiting Cardinia, the Cats made it a real contest in the first half with mop-head ruckman Darren Flanagan kicking five goals, three in the third, as the Cats took control and ran away with a 28-point win. Round 11, Geelong scratched, bit and clawed its way to a two-goal victory over the Tigers at the MCG. They raced to a five-goal lead early and led by six at half-time. The Tigers kicked seven goals to two in the third quarter to make it a match, but the Cats hung in thanks to Darren Morgan, Gary Ablett and Michael Turner. Round 12 was a devastating blow, devastating blow to the Cats as they lost to the Dogs. In the process, Greg Williams did his right knee and was done for the year. Ugh. Jacko and Ablett were reported with Ablett copping a two-week ban. Oh. So it's almost the opposite. So round one and round 12 are almost like opposites. Yeah. Round 14, the Cats and the Roos game was seesawing. We're both taking the lead across the first three quarters. The Cats finally taking control in the last, thanks in part to Jacko. Um, they won by 18 points. Ruse captain Ross Glendinning was reported for the first time in his career for striking cat Bernard Tui, and he was given a two-week suspension. Round 15, in wet and heavy conditions at Cardinia Park, the Cats held off a desperate St Kilda to win by 13 points. Ablett with five goals and a few spectacular marks. The win was set up by the Cats' eight goal to one opening quarter. Round 16 against the Dees. Before the match, Geelong supporters held up a banner reading, If Barassi walks on water, then Ablett must be God. <laughs> Is this the origin of that nickname? Is that what we think? Perhaps. Yeah. Because I don't think it was until 85 or 86 that he that became a born-again Christian. Yeah, okay. So perhaps this is the origin of that nickname. Uh-huh. Um, the Cats were too strong for the Ds at Cardinia Park in a fiery game. Cats captain Mick Turner was reported before the game even began. Uh, but he was still his inspirational best. Brian Peake was also great with 34 disposals. Forgot about Brian Peake. Round 19, the Cats had a solid win over the Swans at Cardinia. The Cats' running players earned them the 21-point win, led by Andrew Buse and Darren Morgan. Round 21, they thrashed the Tigers at Cardinia by 50 points, although it should have been more. They kicked 14 goals, 29-113. Ablett kicked five goals, six. Terry Bright and Mark Jackson also kicked four behinds. Uh, Mark Boss was dominant at ground level in this. Uh, in round 22, the Cats had to win against the Hawks to make finals. They kept pace in the first half, but a scoreless third quarter ended their season. Yeah, must have been. I mean, it was always going to be a difficult ask. What characters in their team, though? I know. Ablett and Jacko. Can you think if Jesus didn't, didn't injure himself? Yeah. I mean, you know it's only going to be good things from here, right? Yep. Uh, so, the lead goal, goal kicker at Geelong was... Jacko, yeah, with seventy four, pretty Gary, good outfit. Yeah. Output. Gary Ablett kicking thirty three, and the Kaji Greaves medal in eighty four went to Gary Ablett Senior, which I think is his only best and fairest win. Um, I think you are correct, which seems ridiculous for a player of such remarkable prestige and yeah. legendary status to only have won one best and fairest seems ridiculous. And so early in his career, and when he kicked. So few goals, comparatively, yeah, so few goals. Phenomenal. Yeah. So there are non-finalists, Timmy. Do we have a fine night series this season? We certainly do. <laughs> what fun things did uh, the uh-huh. VFL cook up this Let year? Let me tell you all about the Sterling Cup. Okay. The 1984 Sterling Cup. So, uh, very similar to last year's setup with the qualif- with a little bit of qualifying... Uh, and mainly just the rounds getting through. Uh, look, I mean, there's so many games to be played again. Uh, a qualifying game was played between... So, Queensland, who was 
the winner of the 1983 Escort oh, yeah. Shield yep. between the developing the states. Best of the rest. And St Kilda, who were the... Worst team. The 83 Wooden Spoon. Yeah. Uh, St Kilda won by just 11 points. And so they got through to round one. So then we had... Uh, in round one, I won't won't go through any scores. I'll just tell you what happened. Essendon smashed North Melbourne. Collingwood beat Claremont. Uh, Hawthorne beat Richmond. Footscray beat West Adelaide. Um, St Kilda beat South Fremantle. Carlton beat Geelong. Sydney beat, beat Fitzroy. Sorry. Yeah, go. Sorry, Mel- and Melbourne beat Sturt, meaning that. All of the uh, interstate teams are out. Interesting that like St Kilda, who was the worst place Victorian team, beat South Fremantle, the, the third best waffle team. Like, I know. That just shows the difference in leagues, doesn't it? Yeah, completely. Um, uh, there were a couple of a couple of things that happened. So Fitzroy versus Sydney had to be in within those those weeks had to be moved three times. So <laughs> Fitzroy originally was moved to the one from the April tenth to seventeenth because Sydney were playing a uh, premiership match on just before that, and then on April seventeenth it had to be moved into May because the um, I think there was flight was delayed. Oh, I think there's actually flight cancellations or a protest or yeah. something like that. It was delayed by I think they were due to take off like ten minutes before the game was supposed to start or yeah, something okay. like that. Uh, so that took us through the quarterfinals where Essendon beat Collingwood, Sydney beat St Kilda, Hawthorne beat Footscray and Carlton beat Melbourne. Uh, then Essendon beat Hawthorne uh, and Sydney beat Carlton, taking us to the grand final, Sydney versus Essendon. And Essendon managed to take out that night premiership flag, uh, which was brilliant. So a couple of things happened there. So... Bombers got thrashed last year in the grand final, right? Yes, by the Hawks. In by the, the Hawks. VFL grand in the final. VFL grand final. So they entered this series seeking redemption, okay. they say. Yeah. Uh, their 51-point win restored their belief and, uh, you know, they, they, look, they kept on looking pretty good. Yeah, yeah. The cup in the final game moved from a... Post-match presentation on the on-field podium into the dressing rooms. They did it in the oh, winning okay. team's dressing rooms. It was done, apparently, after problems with rowdy fans who jeered administrators the previous ah. year. Um, so that there was a huge backlash from it moving into the change rooms and it went back yeah. to the traditional location outside okay. uh, for the 1986 series. So I'm not sure. Maybe they had tried one more year. But... One of the unfortunate side effects of it being in the rooms was how hectic it was in there, and the theft, the trophy was stolen. What? Yeah. So there's photos of Terry Danaher holding the cup, uh, but somewhere in the chaos of the celebrations, with patrons and fans filling the rooms, the cup vanished. <laughs> it's never been seen again. So Barb Cullen, um, uh, the the wonderful Barb yeah. who we've spoken to, um, has launched a search for the trophy. Almost 20 years ago, still remains missing, <laughs> and the club have made a replica to fill the void okay. in their trophy cabinet. Yeah, okay. Uh, you know, this is the last year that the Swan Districts weren't allowed to uh, yeah. weren't, weren't allowed to play. They did qualify by winning the Waffle Premiership, of course, but they yeah. were forced to to uh, serve out their final year. That's right, after they sent that team to play uh, against yeah, Richmond. the Colts. Yeah, they got thrashed by some ridiculous amount. And 
this season was the first to feature night matches at Football Park. Oh, okay. Yes. They, so the, the first, the opening two, the two opening round matches were played under the Sandfall's newly constructed light towers. Um, so there you go. There you go. I, I used to like the night series back, back when it was like a knockout tournament and there was like a premiership. There was a winner. Yeah. Because it gave it gave other clubs a chance to aim for something and yeah, a bit of success. Yeah, get, get a bit of silverware. Remember the Saints won it in '96, I think it was, and they just you know to have that success was huge. Yeah, celebrate exactly. I should say sorry. Um, and plug up was the lead goal scorer of the series with ten goals from his three games. Yeah, not bad. Yeah, but you're right. It just sort of it was an extra thing, and especially for those for those clubs that yeah. aren't having a huge amount of success. It often happened that way that they were they you know mm. it wasn't the best team usually. Could they bring it back? They they won't. I don't think they could. No. They're already complaining that the season's too long, aren't yeah. they? So yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. But there's the season. Thank you. Well, no, it's not. Half there's the half the season. Yeah. So yeah. All right. Well, it's good to be back. Be 1984. Back. I'm loving it. So we'll we'll churn out oh, maybe two or three of these episodes we before we switch over. To, to, to our weekly, format. yeah, our weekly little just. We'll see how that goes. History link. Yes, can't wait. Yeah, with a few, you know, new theme song and a. Oh, so many a few, new a few bright and shiny things to play with. To, to tinker to with, it's going to be fun. Yeah, it'll be different. Beautiful. Well, until uh, next week, until we finish off these finalists. Hooroo! To find out more about the Kick to Kick team and the sources we use, visit our website, www.kicktokickpodcast.com. You can contact us via email at kicktokickpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram under at kicktokickpod. Thanks so much for listening.